2: and welcome to security and secure hosted by me johnny c this is the celebrity mental health podcast where i say it's okay to not be okay and if you have the same match as me then before we get to today's guest please subscribe to security and secure where you're listening and at the end of the episode give a five-star rating and a review now let me tell you about my guest today My guest today is part of the Circadian and Security Book Club. This is where I speak to an author about the mental health themes in their book. This week, it's the Far Children series author, Louise Allen, who is one of the most amazing foster carers in the world and tells these most incredible stories about the children that she fosters, or adults sometimes, and... Also, the journey pre-fostering, during fostering, and after fostering. And there are so many lessons that you can learn from her. So with her new book, Sparkle Story, out to buy now, I'm delighted to welcome to you, it's Louise Allen. Hello, Louise.
3: Hi, hi. Lovely to be here. Thank you.
2: An absolute pleasure, my absolute pleasure. Well, look, let's start with the overall theme of the series, Thrown Away Children, because every single child is part of that journey of being a quote-unquote, thrown away. Why did you decide to call it that?
3: Well, my first book, which was Thrown Away Child, which was about my story about being in the care system. And then after I wrote my story, which to my... Utter shock and amazement became a bestseller and was number two in the main charts and it it went crazy and and from being a nobody to somebody writing a book without even believing I could write. Then I wrote a book and after the shock I had a break. I had a rest and I thought, well, what can I do? And I'd I'd always been an artist and an illustrator. I'd never written before. I didn't believe I could write. I was told I couldn't years ago. So Thrown Away Children... Are about the children that come into our lives because since I was in care and since the life and the career, we ended up as a fostering family. So it's about the children I know.
2: So as you mentioned, you did the first book about yourself. You grew up in the care system. So can we start there at the beginning of how old were you when you went into the care system? How did you find out you were in the care system? What was your journey like through the system?
3: And one of those forced adoptions from the 60s and 70s that you might hear about, where my mum was a child and fell pregnant with me. She ended up at 15, 16 in the mother and baby unit in Oxford. I was the forced adoption and put into a, a family who had a birth child and had a, adopted a child, but were on the children's department's watch list because of the abuse they were giving to the adopted child who was two years older than me. So um, it's pretty weird how I was. and And they said when the children's social care presented me please take this baby because there was a lot of us a lot of people weren't really getting the hang of the back of the packet the the pill because uh, a lot of girls are still falling pregnant or weren't using it or what was going on in my case it was far murkier and darker they said from the off it's written in my paperwork they didn't want me and then when children's social care said well can you just look for foster her They said, well, no. And then they said, okay, then we'll take her away. And then she said, I'm interested again. So it was that push, really weird push-pull. Every time she was asked to take me, she didn't want me. But if they took me away, she wanted me. So that should have been one of the major red flags (laughs) at the time to say that this is probably not a good adoption placement. Two years later, after many reports and investigations into child abuse into our family from neighbours and the other little boys nursery and so on so the judge decided that I should be adopted into that family But when I got my file years and years later it's very hard reading all the handwritten notes from social workers saying this is dicey. Don't do it. This is the wrong place. Th- th- these are the wrong people. Don't put this child in this placement. I saw what was my care plan, which was uh, a few lines on a very old typewriter <laughs> saying, care plan, get this child baptized. That was the main priority. So I'm assuming that there was a lot of religion in the children's department at that time, which held views about children like me who were mixed race, illegitimate. Turns out, to make it even worse, why it was a hasty adoption was that my father was a paedophile. Um, my mother was 12 when he started grooming her. And I met my father um, at the end of August, three weeks before he died. He was aged 93. And it's a murky path, absolutely horrendous start because everything is shrouded in society's dread. You know, I was uh, one of those statistics, you know, illegitimate, yes, born to a child, yes, father was married with other children and a paedophile. Her family were shocking adopted into because they wanted to get rid of this baby and I think that um, and it was a forced adoption because there's a trail of paperwork that uh, closes really clearly how the the department lied to my birth mother. My birth mother has never been right since. My birth father went on to produce many more illegitimate children so he was quite prolific in his work and apparently before he died he had nightmares about girl guides. My mother was a girl guide. So we were just uncovering a whole paedophile ring in the town where I grew- was made to add to all the other stuff. So I'm very familiar with having to hold and live with other people's mistakes and other people's challenges and other people's sort of failings. So I ended up in the, in that place. My adopted mother was very abusive, very cruel, but were often starving and had to eat bird seed. And um eventually the neighbors won and the, the the school, the head teacher at the primary school where he was at actually managed to get him away into a children's home, uh, where he was in three children's home before he was chucked out at 16. And I stayed in the family because I was told that I was naughty, but I would be all right. So I stayed there, been serially abused and God knows what. And I finally chucked myself out after a horrible night and evening. When I was 15, I'd been, I was really into music. I still am. And I think music and art were definitely my outlet. And I lived in Oxford. You could actually bike into town and watch bands. So one night, she was smashing my head against the sink and kicking me, and I got on a train, and I, I didn't go back. So that's my story. <laughs> I mean, I knew little bits of it through
2: the books, because <laughs> I've read all your books. For those listening, that's a lot to process, obviously. i am just giving yeah. a second for everyone to just process that. You sound, I mean, I suppose it's a stupid comment, but there's obviously a desensitisation to it because you've lived through it, because you've spoken about it a lot, you've written Mm. it down, you've processed it. Mm. How do you look at that version of Louise Allen, that young version who went through that? Based on that, obviously, we know what incredible work you now do and you've put those traumas to good use, but how do you look at that younger version? Do you see that as part of you or do you see that happen but that isn't me anymore?
3: We well, can't do that. That's just young me. That's just young me. I'm still me. I still sound like me. I still think like me. I had that one person in my life that we all need. I'm very lucky. There was an Irish navy, a retired Irish navy, living in a caravan in the orchard next door who knew what was going on, but never, never revealed to me. I know that he and other people went to the children's department, but he looked after me, he fed me. He fed me and he gave me a magical world because he was funny, genuinely laughed. And I spent so much time in his company learning how to laugh. So I preferred laughing to not laughing. I have always sought out people who are funny, not like my birth father, who was very funny, but he used his humour to a dark end to get girls and women but people who are witty, who see life lightly. And I have always gathered myself towards like-hearted people. And I think that's because it's avoidance, because I hope they never ask me the heavy questions. I think I had to just come to terms with it. It'll never go away, but so what? (laughs) So what? I can't do anything about it.
2: So where do you stand then on the idea of unconditional love that... It, number one it wasn't your mother's fault let's put that on your birth mother's fault anything that happened yeah. she didn't you know encourage For your birth father for what he's gone through for you and for others as well do you still have an element of unconditional love for him or was it you know I don't want anything to do with you I don't want to know you I, I I'm, I'm kind of sick that I've got your blood inside me
3: That's a really good question. It it, and I think it's sort of it's a it's a bit like wearing really badly ill fitting clothes that sometimes you want to just get out of because they make you feel not like yourself. Now I always knew of my birth father and I spoke to him several times throughout my life. I never never met him, and only met him this year. And when I spoke to him, all he wanted to do was talk about my. Birth mother, he didn't wasn't really interested in me. I arranged to meet him several times in Oxford under Carfax Tower, and I'd At sta- one time, I stood there for four hours, and he would never show, so he would never actually come. So I got my anger with him out the way quite early. And once you've done the anger and the disappointment, you just sort of have to. You have no choice but to try and understand them. Now I understand that he was quite a dark character. His blood is in a lot of us. There are many... I went to his funeral and people were counting on their fingers how many children he might have. He drove a taxi, which we call the sex palace, and he literally would go from one hospital to another seeing his newborn babies. He had a thing about procreation. But then his background was that he... He was one of 12 very poor Jewish people and he had to go out stealing and he ended up in juvenile prison and then in prison because of poverty. So my background is a background of other people's extremities. It's all their stories. I don't have my own story on its own. My story exists as part of all their stories. So... Unconditional love, I give it out like you wouldn't believe. I have children here who are totally adored and spoiled rotten. They have absolutely everything. I can accept love. There was a stage in my life where I had to wake up to the idea that I was hurting myself by choosing people to be near who were hurting me. I was very used to pain. And that's all I knew, that was my comfort place, weirdly, until I decided that I wasn't laughing enough. If I monitor my life by how much I'm feeling happier, how much I smile, how much I laugh, and I was in relationships where there was more tears. It's about trying to, to shake off what you don't really need. I can't do anything about all their past. I'm not ashamed of, my, of them. I didn't do it. Talking to one of my siblings that I only met this year, who is ashamed. And I said, what have you got to be ashamed about? We we didn't do this. We're just the, the the result of their behavior. And what they did is not our responsibility. We can't carry that. But what we can do is break all chains and make sure that none of us repeat the behavior of my adopted family who were very... But they had their own issues. But I have consciously worked on never being the parent, I had four of them, that I came from. I had a long gap between leaving at 15 and actually having children at 38, because I was very aware that I was not ready. I had work to do.
2: I'm very glad that you bring up the compartmentalism idea, because... I'm very much about rehabilitation back into society and not just throw someone in prison and that's that and not knowing their story and you're right that you've got a story but it's affected by other people and other people have got a story and uh, you know and credit to you to you know bring up your birth father and say that he had his struggles goes back generations but you can't just tunnel vision on one problem you have to look what's around yeah. and we'll talk about your book shortly sparkle story because sparkle's birth parents also had the issue so yes sparkle acted out but her parents were acting out and then if you go back a stage again you see why that happens I just want to go back to one more thing you said about going to your birth father's funeral and obviously you'd had the anger etc early on what was your grief journey like this time around when you were there with people who were your siblings by blood and that you'd already got through that anger stage and then you're seeing that coffin with your birth father in it did that grief journey change because you'd already gone through so many of the emotions already
3: Yes I mean I wasn't feeling what anyone else was feeling in in that church that day I was very observant I mean I write for a start and I'm an artist so I'm incredibly observant which is I think my creative career came out of hyper but also and...
2: very cathartic as well because you've yeah. got an outlook to actually do it whether it is the art or the writing that is the cathartism always coming through so you're actually dealing with those emotions
3: absolutely and I don't think I'd be here if I didn't have them. To be perfectly honest yeah, the yeah. in the funeral I sat behind my half sister and I was more careful about her I was with one of my sons one didn't come because he had something on at college but my younger son came because actually I was passing the story on to them as I kept saying to them do you want to come and meet your grandfather they knew he was a paedophile and everything they were like yeah.
1: selling a little or a lot For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
3: No, I said it's your choice, but this is your story now. This is your story, and you need to not feel it's not fair. I mean, that's really important that I learned at 18. To feel sorry for myself, to feel it's not fair, will only pull me down a black hole. Wow. So I, in my head, I always go to the Irish Navi who, who had been through hell, had no money, lived in the caravan, who would always find something positive in the moment. So if I felt self-pity and I said to my son, this is your story, don't feel bad about it, you didn't make it. You're just carrying the story on. You're writing another chapter. This is your now your version, but you need to know the truth. None of this happened by itself. So being there watching his coffin, I think I didn't feel anything other than curious. What happened? What's going on for all these people? What do these people know? What do they think they know? How did he hide? How's my new half-sister going to work this one out? How do they all feel? Because I knew how I felt because I've had years of experience of dealing with real crazy situations, but they hadn't. So they had thought one thing and then now they know another where my own trajectory has been a constant shock. (laughs) So I'm used to it. It was a very strange feeling because I met him for three hours and then he died and he saw me. But what's really interesting is that when my sister went through his stuff, she found pictures of me. But we also found out that he has probably about 16 other children. We're counting, we're still counting, (laughs) all around the same age.
2: So what does that do to that idea of everything happens for a reason and you look at that as a way to look at the universe and why everything is the way it is with your responsibility and the role that you've got to play in the world and you're doing that job and the reason that and I hope this is okay to say there's a reason that you are still alive and that mentally it didn't shock you and take you to take your own life because you have a job to do and your job is number one to protect children so that doesn't happen again to anyone else and that would only have ever happened because of what your birth father had done and your knowledge of that. And therefore, that is why you are alive today. And it is why you will get to be really old and you'll live to 150 because there are so many children that need your help because of the job that you've got to do. So does everything happen for a reason or is that just an excuse?
3: As everything, I've tried out many ideas growing up, you know, and religion and belief systems and philosophy and all those things are deeply important. And I've read a lot and I think a lot. And I do think things happen for a reason. Why else am I still here? Why else am I as buoyant and as strong as I am? I am so strong. And I'm strong not for myself, though it helps. I'm strong to protect children. Someone called me a partridge the other day, which I'm now taken to an endearment, which is that I will kill to protect my young all the young. I will fight to protect children because I know when you know that pain, I mean, I know my own pain, which is, I can't measure that. That's that's mine. I can't compare that to anyone else's. But when you have other people's children in your life, when you see that pain and you feel that pain, it reminds me every time why this has all happened because they're passing on to me more information. And that information is that we should not be treating children like this in 2023. Something has so severely gone wrong in our psyches, in our hardwiring as human beings, that we see children as economic and sexual advantages. It's just perverse. And I think that. Knowing what I've seen most things and I know most things and I don't ever really get shocked, but I get I get motivated. I feel motivated every day to keep on. And it is a fight and it's a fight in a society, in a system that doesn't like people who have had hardship as children, because if you've had hardship as a child, you have a lesser value. That's how perverse our wiring is you'll be surprised that that many people aren't with open arms saying, oh, let's look after these children. No, there are now, I think it's tipped, I think there are now more people going, how can I exploit children in some form or another, whether it's through selling them rubbish or giving them phones or sexual abuse or whatever manipulation. So we have to ask ourselves, what happened? I think what happened is that we still abuse. The vulnerable, because we're not that great, really, as, as sophisticated human beings, we still hurt the vulnerable.
2: So what does the government need to do? From a governmental standing, if there was going to be a new legislation law or a way of living that's come from a top-down approach, what does the government need to do to help children in foster care? Obviously, this goes out further, because I know there's bigger conversations about foster carers in general and the social care system, What are the kind of, I suppose, the three top things that need to happen to move forward before, let's say, 2026 or within the next three years? These are the three things, one a year, that need to be sorted so that we can start working through this process at last.
3: Right. Three things. Right. okay. The three things before you can even begin are to make an absolute commitment to prevention, to prevention in terms of children coming into care in the first place. You take away the shame and the judgment of people who are struggling. We all struggle. No human being gets from A to to Z without a struggle. And children and our lives don't always tie up. We live in a, a society that is economically confused. It's dangerous. Economics are the things that you need. You need your food, your shelter, you need to feel safe before you can look after your children. So as a society, as a government, we should be doing everything we can to put in measures to keep children with their families in the first place. We need to make sure that Young people know that the responsibility that they have when they decide to have a child. We need to put money and time and energy into prevention, but we're going to be talking about money of all three. And the other one is to put a cap on how much privatisation there is in the children's social care. How many billions of taxpayers' money is not going to the children, it's going to a venture capitalist. That's wrong. That's fundamentally wrong because that means there's a a market in children's pain because all the money seems to be going to the mop-up services and not to the prevention services. The other one would be we have to start teaching social workers and all the agency staff workers, anybody around children and everybody who works around children, that to make a good decision for a child, you have to have the child at the front, middle and centre of your thinking. And it has to be real. And then everybody would agree roughly on the same outcome for the child. Egos have to go. The money has to be sorted. So before we get onto the kind of the hows, you have to have those three principles in place. The objective would be prevention, keep families together as much as you can. That would then lessen the load coming into the care system. And the care system can destroy children. Many people now say, and I'd say too, that from my own experience, that being in care was actually more traumatic than the trauma we had in our homes. The corporate parent needs to grow up and it needs to stop being a hierarchy with, with all sorts of weird egos and <clears throat> things going on and actually remember the children.
2: So that's from my financial point of view. What about the importance of programmes on TV, let's say like Tracy Beaker, which gave me as a young person an insight into a foster home. Obviously, it was a drama, but in Mm. essence, it showcased what the Mm. care system is. And I feel like for a generation now that don't have a Tracy Beaker in their life, that Mm. they don't necessarily understand it. So yes, there's the financial point of view, but Mm. what about uh, from a television, radio, media perspective? What can we be doing to educate people a way that isn't going to cost a fortune
3: yeah well you can be you know telling more stories about it you could be there's a lot of young people and people who were in care and that can be that can take many many guises from kinship to guardianship to to residential care to to foster care to all sorts of things tell their stories because the people who who decide if those stories are told or not are the commissioners Mm. so we'd ask the commissioners to 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 put some balance in and to give us a voice and give our our experience and credibility and also to to comfort because you know okay I'm, I'm in my 50s now but I'm still meeting people and sharing stories and we're we'll all say at the end of it when we've stopped crying and hugging it's so lovely to meet you I always felt on my own so we need to share these stories. We need to stop feeling ashamed because I don't know anyone who somehow in their family, in their community, does not know of, of a child in care or a family that's struggling or involved with drugs or county lines or something. We've all we all know it's out there. So we gotta start sort of asking people to commission the stories and not everyone reads books so we need, we need more visuals and audios we need more programs tracy beaker was brilliant absolutely and then the dumping ground it's brilliant because it took a, the, an element of shame away for all those kids at school and in the community that felt different we're not different our circumstances are just over there instead of there
2: let's talk about one of those stories. We'll focus on Sparkle's story to wrap up this interview, Louise. Why did you want to talk about Sparkle this time around? Because every year you bring out a different child. So how do you choose the child you're going to focus on? And what is Sparkle's story?
3: Okay, I don't write about all the children and sometimes I blend my children when I have to do that to keep their identities safe. Sparkle's story was really about several children I looked after who are involved or became identified in the LGBTQ plus community now the story I write about the ones that are really challenging if I wrote about every child it'd be like reading a really boring report so I, I always choose the really exciting ones Sparkle had a interesting start her father was in his 40s of a younger partner her mum Sparkle was the oldest sibling um, his family, his mum, was very wealthy, she still is, <laughs> I say was, she's still very wealthy, into antiques, which curiously was a, an antiques emporium that I actually used to go to and buy costume jewellery several years ago. When I made the connection, it it reminded me that we are all, every one of us is a story, there is a story brewing, there is something going on. It's, it's a sad story because Sparkle was the adult in that household, age 10 she was running that household. Occasionally her grandparents would come and help, but her dad was, it turned out, as a child, had been abused by one of his mum's boyfriends. And it was in a time where mum was a, a somebody. Nothing was really done. It wasn't discussed. So she dealt with it via guilt and gave him money, bought him a house. Didn't matter that he fell out of university in the first year she threw money at him which is probably the worst thing she did because she he never grew up he had a taste because he was at home all day there were the children at school he was a prolific gamer now one of the things i've noticed as a foster carer is that the problems that we don't talk about are the phones and the gaming because when we talk about phones and gamings we instantly think of children and young people the main problem is with parents and grandparents. The most prolific gamers are actually 46 years old. And if you're in a in a, a society where there's not much unemployment at the moment and not a lot going on, people start gaming. And then some people, that goes a bit further. So he's doing a lot of porn, smoking a lot of weed, getting involved with all that and getting involved with fetishism. Um, so Sparkle, it all went horribly wrong. And Sparkle ended up in a residential home. Which I helped her come out of, and she ended up with us. Her mum sort of disappeared off the scene. Her mum met someone on the internet. So Sparkles story is really a whole story about how how we've living in society now, which is virtual. And when she came to us, she was fine. she was fragile and everything else, but then she started to went to school and started to identify as Pan. But then so did most of the children when she was here so did most of the children I knew and we used to laugh about it as mothers and parents because we'd say something in the water because (laughs) everyone's pan now and everyone's this and everyone's that and she was lucky because she was in the household of quite you know very supportive people we didn't even think about things like that other than support and then it all went horribly wrong because suddenly that you realize that you're involved in in a a whole ideology that is fragile and still growing and it has no boundaries and there's no law to protect it so the children were kind of flaring all over the place and they their belief systems were young and naive but they believed vehemently in what they wanted to believe or told to believe and we experienced as a household bullying A lot of bullying to the rest of the household because we were getting the pronouns wrong. We said something, or she didn't like something, and then she got involved with another group at school who weren't involved in the LGBT group, official kind of support group at school. They were outside it. And then it transferred, and then we were trying, you know, we were trying our best to help. And then the help that was because you you know what it's like anything to do with children's mental health it's hardly there (laughs) if it's Mm. there it's it's miles and years away and we tried our absolute best to make it work but then we were under threat because we were told that in order to help her we had to have psychological reviews ourselves which felt deeply threatening and it threw everything all over the place
2: Story by Louise Allen is out to buy now. Please do go and buy it. It's a brilliant story, and also buy all the other of Louise's thrown away children stories because they're brilliant. Obviously, Louise's own story as well is in there. You've been listening to skin and skin with Me, Johnny. See if we had. Please do go and make the podcast, subscribe to it, share it with a friend, and let's keep spreading the word. It's okay to not be okay. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.